This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What does it mean to think of comparative education beyond the human? Is the field of comparative and international education based on assumptions of individual autonomy and Western Enlightenment thinking that sees time as linear and progress as always possible? Does a post-human future actually hold new possibilities for our research? But can our field even live with such dissonance? Earlier this month, the Post-Foundational Approaches to Comparative and International Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society organized a webinar entitled Exploring Education Beyond the Human to think through some of these very questions. The webinar brought together Wei Li Zhao, Steve Carney, and Iveta Salova. I moderated the discussion, which explored what education beyond the human would actually look like and entail. In this special edition of Fresh Ed, I'm going to replay our conversation, because I think the ideas discussed push our field in new and important directions. And welcome, Wei Li, Iveta, and Steve to the webinar and to Fresh Ed. So to start, I want to sort of give a little bit of context before we jump into this conversation on education beyond the human. We're speaking at a moment where the world is riven by student-led climate strikes. Um, Greta Thunberg is perhaps the most well-known and household name. And in a way, these movements nicely capture the CIES 2020 theme to think beyond the human. At the same time, many of the themes being raised uh, within this rubric are not exactly new within scholarship, whether we're talking about ecological thinking, climate science, social and economic precarity, the limits of capitalist resource exploitation, a a Western-centric modernity, and so on. So this tension between the old and what is new uh, in trying to think about and rethink education, and specifically comparative education, is what I hope we can spend some time doing within this conversation. So I'd like to start with Iveta. Education beyond the human can be read in a variety of ways. How do you approach it? Thanks so much, Will, for having us on Fresh Ed and for the first question. There are definitely so many different ways to approach the question of education beyond the human. And, uh, and as you already see from the title of the conference itself, it's not the education post-human. We very deliberately chose the term beyond to signal the much needed relationality of humans and modern human worlds around us as well. So this is kind of the one of the maybe main angles that I am approaching it from. You know, this discussion of education beyond the human also very deliberately is positioned within the current um, climate crisis discussions and experiences that we all have. Because undeniably, the um, climate crisis situations that we are in is um, a result of uh, many centuries of uh, human-centered um, developments that we uh, all contributed to, especially higher education institutions in addition to many other institutions as well. But uh, for centuries now, we have been producing theories that position the human at the center of uh, everything else. And um, 
and especially more recently with also theories of economic growth and uh, other Western, you know, philosophical ideas of human exceptionalism really led to this uh, very precarious positions that we are in right now. So as you said, uh, there are very many ways to approach it. And uh, I personally approach it from, you know, this idea of more than human worlds that we have to reposition ourselves in, in a more relational way to other species and other beings, whether they are uh, living or non-living beings on earth. And, you know, hopefully to engage in, um, engage with the world in many different ways, also experiment with thought in more radical ways than we have um, experimented so far, especially in the area of education. And of course, there are lots of technical solutions and uh, that we can think about and um, also link to this theme. But the idea is to, you know, the idea was uh, kind of situating framing the discussion in terms of beyond the human is to open multiple ways to approach the discussion. And so, uh, and also multiple ways to approach the plural worlds that we are all parts of. And uh, for me, these are the worlds of the nature seasons and spirits of the ecosystems and environments of cyborgs and uh, of goddesses of artificial intelligence and of the ancestors. So, uh, wide variety of kind of entry points into the conversation. So I guess the idea was to open up the conversation to the ideas that have existed already for a long time, but maybe have been neglected, but also open the space for some radical thought experiments that we can also play with. So Wei Li, would you agree with Yvette that we need to be talking about, you know, beyond the human rather than the idea of post-human? Yeah, I think so. But to me, the, the term post indicates a linear time, like a pre, post, uh, past, present, future. But more than the human or beyond the human is a more comprehensive word to me. So I do uh, cultural foundations of education, so mostly looking at some Chinese, ancient wisdom like Confucian, Confucianism and Taoism. So to me, what does human mean? For example, from the Confucian perspective, maybe human being is made relationally instead of a foundational individualistic center of being. And then from the Taoist point of view, it looks at uh, the human-non-human human world more relationally, more aesthetically probably. Yeah, so I totally agree that more than the human is better word than post or pre these, okay. And Steve, would you see anything different here from Weili or Iveta? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say different. I think. I think um, Iveta gave a good. A good um, overview of of why we can't keep in this paradigm of consciousness where the human is in the center. I can. I can. I can certainly see there are a number of ways to to get beyond that if we're to deal with the, not only with the current crisis, you know, an environmental crisis but also the challenge we have in coming further with concepts. You know, so I always, I, I was happy to, to um, start the discussion around the notion of, of post-human. That was, I think, part of the, the terms we were given. But I think, I think, I think Whaley is, is right as well, that that has a linear connotation um, and that traps us in some, in, in some sense in working with the human. But I think that's, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a problem we all have anyway, because we're trying to come beyond human-centered scholarship 
but nevertheless um, many of the well, the ultimate aim of that scholarship is to improve human life you know i think that's that's the, that's the challenge of climate change now that we've created this problem and we have to get out of it ourselves and so we've got to we've got to somehow work with um you know in some sense traditional human problems i mean the next the next stage of modernity will be the first one where um those those in the most disadvantaged situations will be the first to experience what comes from the current age of modernity. We'll be able to, for most of us listening to this program, we'll be able to protect ourselves from the worst, the worst impact of what's coming. Um, and usually modernity, the fruits of that, comes to the middle class or to the wealthy or those with, with connections and, and whatever. And, and we're in a situation now where the next stage of humanity will be much more uneven in ways that we can't easily address through social policies. So we've got to get beyond thinking about our science in terms of humans, but it's still going to always be for humans. And that's a, that's something that I've, you know, I struggle with in thinking how we, how we actually do a science um, that's for the, for the planet, but, but um, where humans are still going to be um, a major part of our thinking. It seems like what we're talking about in many ways is really rethinking a lot of our field's foundational assumptions. And Wei Li, you, you brought up, you know, looking at the field using sort of non-Western modes of thinking or traditions. And, and you brought up Confucianism and Taoism. And I want to sort of explore a little bit more what that actually looks like. So you mentioned linear time and changing the focus on the modern notion of linear time, but are there other elements to non-Western thinking beyond a human that we should be considering in our scholarship, in our foundational assumptions of comparative education? To me, I like what Will mentioned about this uh, dilemma that we try to get rid of the human-centeredness. We have no other choice but to come back to the human world. That makes me thinking about uh, a distinction I'm struggling with between this human-centeredness put as the anthropocentrism and the, the word of human agency. So in Confucian, there's a senior sinologist, Roger Ames, and mm. he and his colleagues have been doing work on Confucian, reinterpreting Confucian work, hopefully as what it is. So they said when they tried to translate uh, the analects into English, and they found many, many places were talking about what does it mean to be a human. And then they found none of the places really speak direct to the Western idealistic, the essential notion of human being. So they, instead of using the common concepts like uh, virtue or moral education, or individualistic human beings. Instead, they proposed a new term, Confucian role ethics, to rethink human beings as being relational, as being made through playing relational different roles in various settings. And Yvette, I want to bring you into this, this conversation. I'm, I mean, how would you approach um, you know, rethinking some of these foundational uh, assumptions in our field? That's a really good question, and uh, and actually I have been rethinking a lot of my own work in the in the recent years as well, 
actually even going back to the very first article I published as a graduate student in uh, 1996, which was on um, textbooks in Soviet Latvia and also looking at these Soviets in, the, in, in at these textbooks in the context of transition from the Soviet to the post-Soviet and kind of looking at um, some of the, how some of the main um, ideas of the human of the time and space have changed um, during that process. But since then, I also have added some of the pre-Soviet textbooks kind of to look maybe more comprehensively and broadly at these textbooks. And, um, and I'm not sure if it was because I added you know, I brought a sample to the, um, you know, to this research, or probably because I myself have changed quite a bit over the years too. But suddenly, I have uh, uh, noticed so many more things that I have never noticed before. So, um, just to go back to you know some of the previous comments as well. So, for example, along alongside the linear times that children uh, learn in early literacy textbooks. They also learn in the Latvian context, even during the Soviet times and in the post-Soviet times, they also learn the circular time. And they learn how um, life revolves around the different stages of the sun and the moon and uh, how it revolves around the different nature seasons. Or, you know, that there is a very, very deep rootedness that is also uh, taught at the same time as uh, kind of the ideas of modernization and urbanization are taught to children. And, uh, and then ultimately, which I think also was surprising to me, uh, and maybe because it also was such a very close part of my growing up in Latvia, that I maybe did not even notice it immediately in textbooks when I was doing analysis of these textbooks as a academic, as a comparative education scholar. So I also noticed, looking at them more recently, that we actually, uh, so these textbooks are also teaching children to how to communicate with uh, stones, with flowers, how to listen to them, how to be, uh, basically how uh, children or humans more broadly are no different at all than uh, the stones that they pass by on a daily basis. And so to me, it was, uh, you know, really interesting just to kind of observe my own kind of transformation, because uh, when I started doing research at Teachers College at Columbia, I obviously was trained very specifically to look at particular things and uh, not notice other things. And uh, I think the kind of once you shift your gaze, but I think it's not only the gaze that you shift, I think it's also when you move yourself uh, in a different way, you just see that there are so many other worlds around. And we in comparative education only write about one world, the Western modern world and the schooling that is uh, so central to it. But I think if we only kind of shift uh, ourselves and uh, the way we look at the world, I think we can notice so much more. And so that's really fascinating to me. It is quite interesting, this idea that, you know, these multiple worlds exist. It's just we're not able to see them because of our own particular training or upbringing or socialization or whatever it is. And all three of you mentioned this idea of relationality, trying to bring relationality back in to some of our methods and epistemologies of our own research. 
uh, in the field of comparative education. But I want to sort of, you know, also think historically here because this idea of relationality has been for quite some time a topic of discussion in the field of comparative education. So Steve, I mean, you know, how should we be thinking about relationality and, you know, what is the value of looking back at history of other scholars of comparative education that have also talked about such a concept before? Before looking backwards, I guess it's good it's good to have an, an object in mind. I agree with Iveta that, that comparative education in particular has always had a one-world approach. It may not have, even when it wasn't trying to export a particular educational method and research approach and then policies, it was nevertheless seeing the world through through a common lens. And then differences were always able to be measured or assessed based on a zero, like an epistemological zero point. So that's in the DNA of, of comparative education, which is which is a big problem. But if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about where we're at now and the changes that are coming in scholarship, I guess I guess it would be helpful to try and to try and um, take some bearings there and agree where we're going. So of course, there's a climate crisis. People are responding to that in different ways, with in, in curriculum and with advocacy, and then taking the sort of broader approach that Aveta talks about in scholarship. There's a lot of different responses there. But I guess from my perspective, you know, I guess I started I started my academic work in comparative education doing critical ethnography. You know, so some sort of very light, very light um, Frankfurt School critique, but often, often uh, leveled against the development industry, but also elitism in in host countries, you know. And then I moved into Foucault, um, and I didn't really immerse myself in that. And then I sort of left and have gone into something that's probably much more postmodern in a way. But one of the things I notice now reading the journals, especially when environment is not necessarily the aim of the article, but is a subtext, is, is much of the work on new materialism is, is, is one of the growing areas that's, going to, that's undoubtedly going to become important in comparative education because it's now a major, a major strand in educational studies. So a lot of those new materialist scholars do, do fantastic work exactly along the, the, the lines Iveda was talking about, about seeing things that were always right in front of our eyes, but we were that that but because of various processes i guess of like abyssal thinking D'Souza santos would say they were excluded from our you know you would only see a stone if you could use a stone you know you wouldn't see it for the for the thing in itself but for what it could be in terms of exchange value you know so we've always we've always been in the world where everything is available but we're just like D'Souza santos says about uh, world knowledges we live in the west with maybe five or ten percent of the world's knowledge accessible to us you know so most of the most of the understanding of the world is um, invisible to people in the west and that's been the, i think that's been the problem in comparative education that we've been able to see the world but only on certain terms so i think new materialism is 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 one important reference point for a lot of this discussion because it builds on the past I think, um, in many productive ways, but there's also a, a healthy critique there for, for, for how we come further. And I, I think many, many new materialists came out of Marxism and then transitioned into, into sort of Foucauldian governmentality theory. And that many of them have told me, and some have written about how it just no longer provided the vocabulary they needed. It didn't put, Bronwyn Davis was one who said, it just doesn't have the, post-structuralism just doesn't carry the concepts anymore. I can't use the concepts for what's coming in the future. 
Others, others. I think Betty St. Pierre has said that post-structuralism has come to the end because it was so deeply mired in humanism, even though it was trying to decenter the subject, it's just trapped in humanism and there's just not concepts for it to come further. So now we're at a stage, I think, with something like new materialism, it's, it goes back to what I started with. It's a, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky area because you're trying to do justice to the world as it is, but of course it's always received through the thinking and writing subject. You know, and that's a, that's a challenge, I think. Uh, we know that from both Eastern religion and undoubtedly from a lot of indigenous belief systems that to put words on things reduces them to something much less than their essence, you know. And we're in the business of writing words, you know. That's, that's, we, we've got a, a, a real challenge because we have to end up using, using this really inadequate sign system to explain the richness and complexity of the world. So... But having said that, you know, it's a long, long way to, to introduce um, the notion that many of these things have been there, at least in the Western tradition, with, without, without going into a lot of detail. We'll all, we all sort of know it comes, it comes back in some Southern theory writing that um, Spinoza's idea of, of one world, is monism, is something that, was, that, was, that, that never really was enabled to flourish in Western philosophy. Descartes' idea of the thinking subject um, became much more of a dominant way of thinking. And the idea that reason could conquer is something that we still live with, I think, all through the sciences, including comparative education. But this idea of, of unknowability and otherness and difference, that's been there. That was there in Kant's philosophy. It was there in Hegel, even though he had this notion of a system that would lead through dialectic reasoning to absolute consciousness where you could understand everything, you could negate everything. He said that he said that because we needed to do that through human consciousness, there would always be things that we could never grasp, right? And we knew that in romantic philosophy, that um, yes, uh, man, human beings were in the world, but they could never realize themselves without nature. Of course, that was still a project about man at the center, but it was already an acknowledgement then that there were forces much bigger than reason that would help us become not knowledgeable, but to become aware. And of course, that go, that went through to, to Nietzsche, which is the starting point for a lot of our contemporary ideas, even though we may not realize it anymore. Nietzsche's ideas of perspectivization, perspectivism, um, the idea that the challenge to, to metaphysics, um, the challenge to idealism, and then to ethics, morality, you know, where the subject is always drifts back into the center and the world is seen through not only consciousness but morality. We know that these things have been traps in Western science for, you know, 300 years. And I think new materialism does its best now to be aware of this trap that it's the thinking subject that needs to express the unstatable, the, the impossibility of knowing. So I think I think you you could you could use new materialism, which to me it sounds like a harsh critique. But most new materialist work I read is centered in Deleuze only, and of course Deleuze was building on Nietzsche, who was building on those critiques of Kant and Hegel, you know, and those things get lost. So it sounds it often sounds like Deleuze was the original thinker, who was taking us beyond the human, and I think those things were there at least in the Western intellectual tradition, um, from Kant. And so, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do now in a, in a book that's trying to re-theorize and, and consider new methods in comparative education is to go back to some of those historical debates, if you can call them that, about what can man know.
you know, what are the limits to our knowledge and what is there beyond the knowable? Because that's where I think, I think that's the starting point for new materialism is, you know, what, what can we know beyond the things we've ever looked at before? So, Waley, is what Steve's saying about, you know, the, the value of new materialism something that, you know, you would use in your own scholarship or, or in your own thinking when you consider ideas of beyond the human? I find the idea on the limitation of the vocabulary is fascinating. Um, to me, I would usually put it as an issue of language, and not just the language, and also the English grammar. Or maybe not just the English grammar, but uh, the Western language systems, the grammar. My work draws upon Heidegger's thinking, Foucault's thinking a lot. And I, I think uh, that, for example, this representation issue is what is the most often critiqued in new materialism. And to me, representation is not reducible to metaphysics, to language only, but it's uh, uh, inevitably linked to the issue of language. So currently I'm working on a paper that looks at, uh, that draws upon Susan Handelman's work, The Slayer's Moses, and she traces uh, back the theological roots of the the representational thinking. So through the this Greco-Christian principle of seeing, which is uh, a grounding uh, modes of representation, that the, the behind the Greek drive to see through image. So that that's to me fascinating. And she explicates that uh, principle of, of seeing in comparison with uh, rabbinite modes of hearing. And now what I'm doing now is relate these two to the Chinese I Ching, the, exe- exe- uh, the, the mode of observing. So observing is not just a psychological notion that presumes a subject to seeing something as an ab- object. Rather, it, it uh, tells a different story, a different uh, onto-epistemology that is based upon the Chinese, the Asian Chinese correlative cosmology, things like that. So I really like the idea, the limitation of the, the vocabulary, not just the vocabulary, but language or the Western metaphysics. And another thing, I think being relational to me depends upon how you think about the relation, the concept of relation. And Heidegger, in a nice piece of the identity and difference, I think he mentions there are two ways of relating difference as a, a relating relation as a relation. So between the, for example, things A and B. So usually people start with presuming this A and B as separate essentialist things. And then you ask, you cut them, they connect them together, basically by uh, asking what is the essential identities of A or B. But Heidegger says there's another way of thinking about relation as the belonging together, not putting the f- emphasis on the togetherness, but instead on the word belonging. In that case, that disrupts this ontic viewpoints of A and B, but relate them into a dynamic movement in between, which is relation per se. So I really like these ideas, fascinating and inspiring to me. Yeah, uh, so Yvette, I, I want to bring you into this conversation because what Wei Li is sort of beginning to talk about is really a new way of understanding the idea of comparison, which is you know, the field that sort of links us all together. So, you know, how do some of these critiques of, of, you know, of the human, of the subject, 
of, of sort of decentering the subject of relationality, of new, new materialism that we've been talking about. How does this impact the very sort of methodological discussion of comparison? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just uh, very recently read, uh, I have been reading a lot of work by Isabel Stengers and uh, just very recently have read uh, one article that is exactly on comparison and how we can rethink comparison in uh, this context of the ideas we are discussing right now in modern human worlds. So she makes this really interesting claim that true comparison cannot be done one way. It has to be multidirectional and involve on equal basis all of the peoples that are involved in that, all of the beings that are involved in the comparison. And it has to be done full force and with no foul play. And so by foul play, she basically uh, means that one person or being cannot impose his or her or its theoretical framing or to interpret or analyze the other that it always has to be a two kind of directional or multi-directional comparison. And so to me, such comparison is built on a very deep relationality as well. It also kind of captures this uh, also ideas that we are always, that we are never alone, that we are always becoming with the others. And so here the work, I think also Stenger's works connects really nicely with Donna Haraway's work, right? So. Um, so the comparison is not done by an individual, uh, you know, person within a particular framework, but you know, already from the very beginning is, uh, I guess, framed as um, something, as a process of becoming with. So I think that's really interesting to explore. And if we approach comparison from this perspective, then I think for me too, so I've been recently using this idea, kind of playing also with the idea of comparison as actually being a connective tissue between the different uh, worlds or different groups or different ideas, rather than a dividing or, or a, uh, at the dividing line, which I think we usually use comparison as. And probably the best example is all of the rankings that we see on PISA or on TIMS. So this is where the hierarchies, comparison comes as a creation of divisions and hierarchies. But what if we think about comparison as actually creating connections or being a connective tissue between the different, whether it's ideas or beings or worlds or whatever we are comparing. So Steve, I mean, would you agree with Yvette on, I mean, she's beginning to talk about some of these critiques of the current field of comparative education. How do you see the, you know, the current field of comparative education? What are the limitations? Where are your critiques coming from this you know, new materialist perspective that you have articulated? I, I wouldn't say, I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't label myself a new materialist. I'm not sure any, I, I guess some people do that. I'm not sure it's necessary to have a label, but I think the way, the way uh, Iveta was articulating the challenge is absolutely right. I don't know that Stenger's piece, but I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of richness of concepts in, in just in the, the, the two or three minutes she explained that, that article. Things have moved a lot. I think our, if 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 I could be, um, you know, not so humble. I think our, I've been part of a generation that includes Yvette and some some other good colleagues that have really shifted things in the last ten years. Um, of course, the the core of comparative education I think hasn't changed much, you know, since it's it's it's, it's high water mark in the sixties. 
and you know with government policies and the and and we know all that about about um, funding flows and so forth we know a certain sort of comparative work that's a as Iveta says is that's a dividing work that's that's still the most dominant form and then that filters through through educational programs and doctoral training and policy work and it's a cycle so of course we're in a field that that we're part of undercutting by compare com, by always comparing different thinking we're comparing and looking for different objects and that object is always outside us as the observer and we pick objects that are deliberately in a family but they're different you know and that's a that's a in some way that's a like a psychosis we have in our field that that's that's what we think of as comparative but i think if it turns that around from within a western you know i'm not sure it's a western or a southern thing but from from a tradition that i could understand very easily i think she opens up to an entirely different uh, comparative project and i guess we could Whaley could find the same thing in in eastern in certainly in Taoism. you would find the same reluctance um to separate objects both both from themselves and from the from the position of the observer but i like this not knowing that piece from stengers i think yeah we could all be encouraged to think of comparative work as multi-directional and multi and multi-dimensional i think you could convince even the hardest the hardest sort of quantitative people in comparison they they would they would understand that argument i think and and we could move towards a more humane and more humble way of doing comparative work i'm sure that's possible one day but i like this idea she she only just mentioned about from, from stanger saying and there can't can't be any foul play right because that's that you know that's that gets really tricky again because we and once i think we can all understand the the southern knowledge critique you know that 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 we can't no we can no longer um, explore the world on our terms and that we have to have um an aware not only an awareness of the other whoever that might be but we have to be able to take into account all of those different interests and understandings of the world how you codify that into a language or into a research report um that's a visual document mainly grounded in text that's a that's another thing but you know most what i've struggled with i think it's easy to see comparative education as an act of pure violence right of course it's just violent it's always just been violent right and it came out of violent cultures you know it was violent cultures that invented science and they imposed that and they've used it for their own means just like you use a gun you know it's just been that science has been violent so getting away from that will be difficult because we're also trapped you know in institutional arrangements where certain ideas are valued more certain publishing forms are valued more certain languages are valued more and all of those things contribute to foul play you know so um i've taken another route which i'm not sure it will be successful but in the book i've been writing with a colleague in denmark we've deliberately written we deliberately compared three countries that comparativists would never compare together and in the way i did with my earlier policy scape thing trying to compare policy frameworks in three radically different countries so we've we've done that in about young people's engagement in school in urban denmark in south korea and in zambia and they were deliberately deliberately con- uh, contexts that people would think of as different you know geopolitically different in different ways although we didn't accept that and then we when then we've deliberately written this book in fra- in in fragments you know there, there even even the theory and method chapters are written in fragments because 
our position, which came from, uh, I think, a, a little from Southern theory, but also from post-colonialism, was that the original state of the world was fragmented. And it was part of the Enlightenment project to unify that into something that looked coherent. So we're all doing research in context where coherence is the most valued thing. But that itself is a project. You know, to find coherence in a world that's fragmented, that's a project. But we have this naivety of thinking it's an honourable... You know, it's, 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 it's a scientific task to get to the original state. The original state was coherence, and research is aimed at finding the coherence. And I'm not sure that was ever the case, and certainly not the case under global conditions. So we've deliberately written a book that's fragmented to sort of reflect the way, and this is the foul play thing, but to reflect the way that we think young people look at the world. They don't panic when they see fragmentation. They make fragmentation work for them, as we all do in our daily life. So that's sort of like a, a framework for trying to write about the world. But the danger is, it's still the author in the centre. You know, it's still it's still two white Europeans writing about the world. And that, you know, and we're both, in writing this book, we were both really, really influenced in our own ethnographic work by the writing culture movement. You know, this notion that ethnography is, is, about, is about creating the world, not representing the world. You know, we often have this naive view that when we do ethnography, we represent the world. But of course, as we write it, we make the world. So if the world is fragmented and the writer is making the world, that's a double challenge for comparative work. If you can't just study a place and the author no longer has an authority, right? What sort of, what, where do you go after that? And so in my case, I was, I was really inspired um, by, I've always been inspired by literature, but as, as Iveta was sort of implying, that was something, a passion and an expertise I had that I had to leave at the door. You know, I couldn't bring that into my scientific work, which is insane, you know, because what my scientific work was always literary work anyway. But now I've tried to make my academic work literature. You know, Bourdieu would call it social poetics. Jean Baudrillard would call it fatal writing, where you're deliberately writing to confuse and to undermine. But I've been really inspired by magical realism in, liter in literature, Latin American literature in particular. But, you know, my favorite book of all time was Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Child. You know, children, which which actually told you as a, as a in some sense a fantasy m novel got closer to the truth of India's story of independence than any history book would have helped you get to. So we've been writing in fragments, but then also in some sense I dare I I hate to use the word, but inventing our data. You know, we always invent our data because we decide what we put in our our research report. So that's always just um, the, the, the tip of an iceberg of the, of the empirical field. It's always fabricated anyway. But now we've deliberately tried to write from the perspective of young people, but often, often in ways where young people have told us things and we've seen things that would undermine our credibility. You know, so it remains to be seen whether that works, but we've got sections there where we're describing what a young person says and does but then also having another section where the young person develops another voice where they're, they're reflecting on our position as researchers, right? And the aim is to, to make the reader, is to make the reader, re reader realize all the time that they don't necessarily know where they stand, that you can't take the text at face value, right? That truth is something you'll only ever understand as awareness much later when you've digested what you've read but you're not going to get the truth just coming out of the page. 
but that's sort of turning comparative education into into literature right and i think i think Iveta does that really well in a, in a recent article she wrote uh, not as a literary style but but bringing in these sort of this notion of magic and myth and the non-modern so that you think well this is not fantasy she's not writing about fantasy but it's not truth either but maybe fantasy and truth were always part of the same thing it's just that we were brought up in our academic worlds to separate them and it was a, that was an unfair and unreasonable and silly distinction to make between the real and the not real. So what Steve and I mean, what this conversation has sort of focused on now is a lot about these sort of ethical implications of our research, of comparative research, have focused on, you know, really challenging what the empirical even is in our quote-unquote science, and if it can even be called empirical anymore. So, Wei Li, I want to bring you back in to the conversation and just ask, how do you approach these big issues of ethics and what is empirical inside your own research? Uh, and sort of focus on the struggles you have. Like, what do you struggle with when trying to actually move, quote-unquote, beyond the human? One branch of my study is... Uh trying to focus on the newly emerging scholarship on study as an alternative educational formation to the economic-based learning logic. So basically, Tyson Lewis had a book on study which draws upon Agamben's potential and impotential in 2013, and his second book called Inoperative Learning came out in 2018. And I like that work because the second one, uh, what he called inoperative learning, is a form of study. And he told me he got inspiration from a Chinese Tai Chi statement or way of thinking. The weak would defeat to the strong, basically, or the young would defeat to the in. And then to me, this thinking about this, what counts as a possible study moment or what counts as the possible clearing event for moment, a uh, clearing event for study to happen, that that makes me really to look at those educative moment as a data for empirical studies instead of looking at big data. So I wish I could do work on quantitative big data empirical stuff, but I can't. So what I do is try to look, observe, the, for example, the classroom teaching and learning and to watch out for those moments. But exactly, it's very hard because we are using the human perspective. So we are so used to our own style of reasoning and our own limitations of thinking. So sometimes it is happening. Study educative moments happen all the time. But the problem lies with us. It's us who fail to recognize and see those moments. So that makes me challenge the methodologies I usually use. So I, I do phenomenological stuff, and I, I usually um, try to find those disruptive moments that when normal learning activity is suspended. So in the past, I would gloss over those moments as kind of not meaningful. But now I will particularly pay attention to those moments and see and unpack the happening and the possible happening and the way it suspends our otherwise naturalized styles of reasoning. 
So just to follow up, I mean, would you then say that, you know, the, the project that you're working on is about building new knowledge or is it about deconstructing sort of what we or you know? In a way, if I could put this way, to try to challenge some common sense and how it becomes common sense, how it is normalized as normal. So for example, I recently did a paper on Confucian, critical uh, Confucian do after me pedagogies. So because in Chinese classrooms, teachers would mostly say do after me, uh, read after me, right? In language classes and in math classes, they will model the problem solving, the equation solving procedures on the blackboard. So I basically observed uh, a few teachers teaching for a few weeks, and I found it's very intriguing that the teachers, in a very nuanced way, explain the steps by steps, right? And they say it's very important to do this. You cannot admit to this A step or B step or C step, but they never explain why. So to me, that moment jumps out, strikes out as, Pedagogically, pedagogically, I mean, the pedagogical meaning or significance of doing after me is not mm, consciously mm, mm, mm. reflected on by the teachers themselves. So in the, in the interviews, I ask them, why? Why do you emphasize that a lot, but not explain how it is related to mathematical thinking? So I use ethnomethodology as a, uh, um, a not uh, the mainstream sociological research methodology and to find a moment when the student makes an error in doing the equation on the blackboard. So basically that disruptive moment shows through his hand gestures, not looking at what he thinks, but looking at how he moves, how his hand moves actually. So from this, his hand movements, I, I discern a moment that he kind of made an error and he d stops his flow and move back, return to repair the error, something like that. So I use, I zoom on this moment and using the methodology perspective to see hmm. how our thinking flow is embodied or not or disrupted. So this kind of, this moment, I call it a kind of educative moment. And I go back to the teachers talking about those moments and help them realize this possible connection between this pedagogical method and the mathematical reasoning, what is called critical thinking to me. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. that's an example. So Iveta, uh, do you, you know, also explore these educative moments in some of your work? Um, you know, do you see your work as, or the project that we're sort of working in and discussing here as deconstructing what we already know or sort of building up this, this new knowledge or perhaps, perhaps both simultaneously? Yeah, I actually see this project as uh, happening, at, um, happening at multiple levels and through multiple kind of directions. And uh, so to me, for sure, there is some, there is definitely an important task of deconstructing what we have been faced with for so long to um, kind of unlearning the old habits of thought, 
but um, in, a, in those moments too, I actually look for, you know, many of these lessons of, you know, in deconstruction actually do come in some disruptions that happen in kind of established order of things that usually we don't question, right? And, uh, you know, something goes wrong and suddenly poof, the whole, uh, this, well, kind of the status quo is disrupted. So these moments, I think, are really, really interesting to uh, then really focus in and uh, kind of understand what else is going on. Uh, but I think it's also in addition to um, kind of deconstructing or critiquing the kind of the main foundations of uh, thought, the Western modern thought in particular, I think there is also um, a lot in I think there is another project. I think another project is bringing into focus other knowledges that have been maybe remained invisible or that we or maybe have been framed as illegitimate or as unimportant. So I think that's another important project. And I think a third one is also kind of experimenting with thought and with ideas and kind of, you know, playing with ideas in maybe new uh, and different ways. And uh, so I think that's another maybe kind of a third thread that I think is important as well. So not only critiquing and deconstructing, but also bringing into focus what's already there, but we are not really working with for many different reasons. And I think that third line is all about kind of experimenting. And so it was um, actually really funny. I'll tell a short story. I just recently wrote an article <laughs> for a special issue um, on actually that's called Moving Beyond the Western Horizon that I'm uh, also co-editing together with uh, Jeremy Rapley, with you and all, the, and with Youyun, and it will be published in East China Normal University uh, Review of Education Journal. So I just wrote an article which I was writing as kind of, I thought, empirical, real research article. And uh, one of the reviewers uh, read it. I just received the review. She absolutely loved it. And she said, this is just a fabulous speculative thinking work. <laughs> and the whole time I was uh, writing the article, I thought I was actually doing real quote unquote research. <laughs> but again, who is to say what's real? Anyways, but uh, I think that I, I, I think the whole, um, you know, point of speculative thinking of fabulation, which Steve mentioned before, is crucially important to um, kind of rethink what we do as researchers and as academics. So as we draw to a conclusion here, I want to be self-critical. I want to ask about, you know, okay, sure, it's easy to critique where the field was, it's easy to propose all these great new ideas, but what are we missing? So Steve, can we start with you by way of conclusion, basically? You know, how can we be self-critical? What are, what are some of the gaps? What are some of the blind spots in these different ways of you know, doing comparative research that we've talked about today? And I think it's still the case when you go to a conference you know, your average delegate will get up and make a presentation and say, I've studied such and such in this context, and I did these interviews, and here's what the data said. And it's almost as though they're a commentator bringing in that classroom from Wisconsin or Zambia or whatever, and they're giving you access to that real thing. And if they're very good at their job, they're just able to give you more access to the real thing. 
right? And I think that's just that's just part in the DNA in the DNA of Western social science to be to be realist, to be practical, to be valid, generalizable, you know, all those sorts of things. So I think the biggest blind spot is that we don't we're not humble enough to realize that we're always um, thinking about and writing about the world from a perspective. You know, and we need to be able to defend it from that perspective, without without rejecting others. I mean, I think that you know things would be much easier if someone could tell us there is one right way. We just haven't found it yet, right? But there's never going to be one way. That would be that would be reducing the world um, to to a level of banality. There'll never be one way to understand things. So I think there's that. That's the biggest blind spot, and you know how you. I think you can you can the very best students are aware of that but I but I would say also they end up they end up gravitating towards the type of area that we've been discussing today those ones who have that humility that that they realize the subject is a construction that reality is is a myth um that writing is violence and so forth they're the ones that end up coming to our table at the conference you know Whereas the mainstream of the production of academic scientists is based on an entirely different logic, you know. So I think I think the SIG the SIG was one small intervention that was difficult to get accepted. Believe it or not, that took more than a year for the for the the board just to accept the idea of a non scientific SIG, having having a conference now that is on a radically different perspective, is a is a start. I think it'll be difficult p- for people to live with the dissonance. You know, to come to Miami, as bi- with business as usual, and be a- at a conference where it's not possible to go home with the same view of the world. You know, so I think the- these are sort of blind spots that are much more fundamental about what it means to be a researcher. We can always have our different strategies of advocacy, of making education programs, which I've did, I've done, or of writing good articles, which we all do. That's that's sort of more hit and miss about you know about volume and access to people. But I think that the biggest, the biggest, the biggest um, blind spot is our our collective uh, our, our collective delusion that we think we're we're actually studying and explaining the world. Right? It's it's delusion. Waylee, I mean, a few questions. I mean, do you share that same notion of delusion that uh, Steve is talking about? But but more importantly, how are you self-critical in some of these? thoughts that you've you've discussed today to me uh what strikes out uh or what what steve said resonates with me is to think about uh the where does educational knowledge come from or just like for example education is not just a a field blow out of nowhere and uh now people always critique education or the social science scientific scientism epistemologies that ground the way the knowledge is is constructed and reproduced in education. But in my own work, uh, I, I have a language background. That's, I always, that's why I always look at the issues of being, representation, meaning, uh, hermeneutics, exegesis, something like that. So a, a challenge to me is to think about what kind of conditions of possibility that have made educational knowledge possible, that's what we usually ask. But now I'm asking what kinds of onto-epistemological principles that have made the 
current thinking about education as limited as it is, what have made it impossible to rethink about education as what education could possibly be? That's what I'm struggling with now. And so for the, the final question, I'll return to Iveta where we began and ask about you know, your own blind spots. You know, we pointed out a lot of blind spots of the field and critique of the field. And this sort of notion of moving beyond the human, do you anticipate or can you even, if you, if you think about it, are there particular blind spots within that conception of comparative education? There's probably so many blind spots that we are not even aware of at all. But um, I think to me, and it's really interesting because uh, it resonates so uh, closely also so with what Wei Li has been talking about and also Steve. I think to me, it's um, also the questions about what else aren't we seeing, right? What else aren't, you know, what, what else is beyond that we can't even comprehend, right? And imagine. And again, here, maybe I will um, refer back to Isabel Stenger's work because so when she talks about um, this idea of speculative thinking or SF that also others play with, uh, they, you know, she really talks about it as uh, kind of this thought experiment that helps us to reimagine the world differently, but also kind of resitu resituate the given within a much vaster set of possibilities. And so one strategy that she suggests we could use for that is ask a question, and if something could be differently, right? And so that's kind of the question. And uh, if, you know, something that in uh, kind of radical thought experiments that maybe are, you know, that are really missing in our field, right? Because we're not really asking, um, you know, about other ways of, uh, you know, thinking or doing or being. So I definitely, uh, so to me, that's a major challenge of uh, ask this question and if all the time, but also I must say is uh, something that really, really kind of inspires a lot of curiosity. It also makes comparative education much more exciting for me than it was before. So uh, kind of playing with this and if question is uh, absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you, Iveta and Weili and Steve, for joining this webinar. It was inspiring. It does make me get new excitement for the field of comparative education. So thank you very much. And I guess I'll see most of you in Miami next year. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Bye-bye. Thank bye you so much, Weili and Steve. Bye. Thank you. Weili Zhao is an assistant professor in the Curriculum Studies Department in the Faculty of Education at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Stephen Carney is an Associate Professor of Comparative Education in the Department of People and Technology at Roskilde University. Yvette Solova is Professor and Director of the Center for the Advanced Studies in Global Education at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Today's episode of Fresh Ed was created in collaboration with the Post-Foundational Approaches to Comparative and International Education Special Interest Group. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and 
and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.